Hey, podcast family, Jason Miller here. Over the past couple of years, this podcast has made its way into the lives of a growing digital community that covers all 50 states and places beyond the U.S. And here in South Bend, we are humbled knowing that you take the time to listen. It's December, and we wanted to let you know that you can support the podcast with year-end giving by going to southbendcitychurch.com give. If you do that, you'll see a menu that lets you select general Christmas 2019 or podcast. And if you select podcast, that'll just help us have some context for your support. Regardless, this Advent season, know that it's our privilege to serve you with this podcast, that we're cheering for you, and that we count you as part of the family. Grace and peace, friends. We began this Advent season, as you may remember, with an intentional liturgical faux pas, which is the, our first week of Advent, rather than having none of the candles lit, we started with all of the candles lit, to make a sort of point, right? And I was uh, really quite pleased at how many of you were offended by that. <laughs> I mean, jokingly so, but there was a real angst in the room, which was kind of the point. And we started with that image uh, because while Advent is a season to name both dark and light, and to see the light grow slowly in our sort of patient waiting for God, uh, we also observed that there were a lot of ways that the story of our current moment that's being told is a sort of um, like denial story that says everything's great and everything's bright and everything's light and everything's full and everything's rich. And you hear it like in the marketing campaigns and in so many of the other ways that we try to adorn this season with meaning, right? So we started with all the candles lit, and then we did an especially um, sort of, I don't know, pessimistic thing perhaps, which is we blew the candles out one by one. And we named some examples of the things that are aching and hurting at the level of the personal and all the way to the global. Now, uh, this wasn't meant to like be pessimistic, actually. But it's to recognize that, that optimism doesn't have to grapple with what's wrong, but hope does. Because if, if it's a denial-based posture, it's not hope. It's just denial, right? So the hope that we are hunting for and the way of waiting for God that we are leaning into is one that also names what is difficult, right? Now, I have a, a pastor friend of mine who uh, listens to the podcast sometimes, and he texted me this week, and he said, sarcastically, I like the Grinch persona that you've adopted for Advent this year, Jay. So this is for you, Luke. Uh, I'm not trying to be grinchy, uh, but I mean it when I say that I think um, hope has to grapple with all that is aching and hurting. And so we blew the candles out, and then little by little, one by one, we've been relighting them as we make our way toward Christmas. Now, uh, last week, I think it was, I, I mentioned to you as a sort of moment of confession that one of the things I'm struggling with right now is I just honestly don't love what we are. And by we, I mean the human race in the year 2019. Now, there's plenty of that's great and beautiful, and I don't mean that I don't love humanity, but there's a lot of what we are and what we are doing and the way that we are acting and behaving and the posture that we have against one another, like all this stuff that I don't love about what we are right now. And it feels like, like we need to like get back to our better impulses, our better angels. We need to find a way to to like chart the path back to what it means to live fully up to who we are rather than living down to the way that we've been in the current moment. Anybody feel that besides me? It's some of that, right? Yeah. So here's the thing, right? That, that impulse, that awakening moment when you say like, what we are right now is not our best and we need to find a way to get back to our true self and our true purpose, that's not a new experience. In fact, era after era after era, you can find moments of awakening where humanity says, 
We need to find a way to return or to restore, to recover, to be liberated from these counterfeit idolatries and these broken ways of being in the world. That's not a new experience. And one of the places where you can find that experience named is 2,000 years ago, and specifically in the voice of a man named John, who is sometimes called John the Baptist. And no, he wasn't a part of a denomination called the Baptist. Uh, you might know John the Baptist. He's called the Baptist because he did the baptizing out of the Jordan River as a sort of prequel to Jesus' ministry, right? Now, I mentioned John uh, because John seems to have this similar sort of feeling. In fact, he has a word for his message at that time. Uh, the word, as it's often translated in our Bibles, is repent. Now, I know repent can be a difficult word. And maybe it carries some negative freight for you. Uh, or maybe it just feels like a religious word, right? But, but another word that's uh, really valid for what he was saying, and if you go back to like Hebrew word roots for repentance, it's, it's the literal meaning of the word is return. Like, hey, you've gone far away from who you actually are and what you are here for. We need you to come back and be who you really are for us and for the world. So John has this awakening moment. It seems that a lot of other people are waking up too because this movement grows in the wilderness as he is like crying out like, hey, friends, like, we need to get back. We need to return. We need to recover. We need to restore. We need to come back to who we are and what we are actually here for. Now, we've been working with Isaiah the prophet uh, during Advent. It's in the lectionary, and churches like all around the world are doing that. And today, we're going to come back to Isaiah. But first, we're going to look at a moment in the Gospel of Matthew where this Isaiah passage shows up. Because Jesus and John, through John's disciples, they have a conversation about what's happening in Jesus and what's happening in Isaiah. And it has to do with expectation and how to look for the arrival of God at a moment in time when a lot of people realize we need to find a way back. So you guys ready for uh, a little bit of textual work? We're going like, to kind of work it out together today. Good? Yeah? OK, here we go. Uh, let's go to Matthew 11. In Matthew 11, John has been imprisoned by Herod. And that's its own sort of story, right? But John sends his people to talk to Jesus. So when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, that's a reference to Jesus, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, this is interesting, because this is Matthew 11. But back in Matthew 3, when we read about John's ministry, earlier than this, Jesus shows up to John's ministry. John is out there telling people, we need to get back to what we are actually here for and who we actually are. And he's baptizing people. And Jesus says, John, I want you to baptize me. And John has this moment of recognition where he says to Jesus, no, like I shouldn't baptize you. You should baptize me. Because he recognizes that Jesus is like higher on the org chart in the very movement that John is a part of, right? He has this sort of awareness, this reckoning with who Jesus is in Matthew 3. But in Matthew 11, he seems a little frustrated, confused, concerned. Like, I, I thought you were the guy, but I'm not so sure anymore. Now, I love this. Because at least in my experience, it has so often been the case that while you might think the arrival of God would be dramatic and explosive and like packed with pyrotechnics, it has at least been my experience that so often the arrival of God is almost inconclusive, <laughs> underwhelming, elusive. And I know that like, the songs we like to sing about God and like, the big ideas that a lot of us have about God might rally around the idea of like, big and dramatic arrival. right? But it's been my experience, and probably yours, that so often the arrival of God is sort of 
inconclusive. There's a guy named Moses in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Scriptures, and he's doing a big and important thing for God. He's like going to liberate his people from their slavery. And he goes up to the mountain to make sure that God is with him. And, you know, that's what you do back then. You go to the mountain. That's, that's where, like, an ancient person thinks you're going to find God, right? So he goes to the mountain to, to find God and to welcome God and to know that God is with him. And God does this strange thing where he says, fine, I, I, will, I will give you an encounter here of my presence, but you're not actually going to see me. I'm going to hide you behind this corner here. I'm going to go by, and then some translations render the Hebrew that God says you're going to see my backside, <laughs> my behind. Other, uh, other interpretations say it's actually something more like God saying, I'm going to let you see where I just had been. Like the closest you're going to get is this sort of wake behind me or a little sort of dust kicked up that shows that I have just passed by. That's it. That's all he gets. A guy named Elijah, uh, generations later in the story of the Old Testament, Elijah is doing really big and important work, and he's doing this work on behalf of God. And it's kind of like him against the world. So he, too, like, wants some sort of restorative experience of the presence of the connection of God, that God's with him. And so he seeks that out. And the text is so fascinating. It says in 1 Kings that this powerful wind came. And in the poetic melodrama of the literature, the text says that the wind was so powerful that it ripped the mountains apart and shattered the rocks. Okay? So this wind comes by, but it says God wasn't in the wind, in the dramatic thing, right? And then there's an earthquake that shakes the ground, but God wasn't in the earthquake. And then there's a fire, a raging fire that comes through, but God wasn't in the fire. And then it says that there was a whisper. And God was in the whisper. Because I think a lot of us want the arrival of God to be dramatic, but so often it is a whisper. It's a suggestion. It's elusive. It's like right on the periphery of your vision. And if you try to turn your eyes right toward it, it almost disappears or leaves you wanting. Now, we could spend a long time wondering or thinking about why that is, but I'm just observing today that for people who think of Advent as a season to prepare for the arrival of God, to welcome God, like note with John that sometimes it feels a little inconclusive. Now, uh, Jesus has a response for him. So let's go further in the text. He replies, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now that seems like big stuff, right? That seems kind of dramatic. Dead people are being resurrected, right? Like we have really big stuff going on here. So that seems super exciting and impressive. But the thing about Jesus saying this the way that he says it is he's not just reporting on his deeds. He's reporting on his deeds in a way that harkens back to Isaiah 35, which is the prophetic text that we have in the lectionary today. And we already heard some of it read. Like the way he says this is an allusion back to that text from Isaiah 35. And anytime a character in the New Testament grabs a text from the Old Testament to understand what they're saying or what they're doing, it's, it's useful to go consult and figure out what was happening at that point when that text was first offered, right? So let's go back to Isaiah 35. First of all, the text that he's hearkening to directly. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Uh, the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. So that's the same sort of poetic vision of healing happening, right? But let's see what's happening right before and right after. So I'm just going to go to the paragraph before this text here. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. 
The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon, and they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. So we have a desert, a barren place that's blooming, and then we have Lebanon, Carmel, and Sharon. Let's talk about these for a moment. Has anybody been to uh, Lebanon? We've had a few in the church so far. Uh, I had the privilege of going over there just a couple of years ago. Uh, the purpose for the trip uh, was very heavy-hearted. Uh, we spent a week with Syrian refugees uh, who were in encampments there in the Bekaa Valley and just kind of hearing their stories. But I'll say, even today, Lebanon is gorgeous. It's just a beautiful land. The Bekaa Valley, they, actually, they call it the Napa Valley of the Middle East. And they really, like, it, it kind of works that way. It's actually a place where a lot of good wine comes from. And if you've ever been to Napa Valley, picture that kind of lush, hospitable, beautiful, temperate, welcoming sort of landscape. Picture that when you hear this reference to Lebanon. Carmel, as it's referenced here, specifically refers to a part of that land that juts out into the Mediterranean, also incredibly lush. It was a place that people dreamed of going to, and they referenced in their poetry as a place of flourishing. Uh, seems to have gotten something like 28 inches of rainfall a year in the era when this is being written, which is a lot of rain, a lot of water for that part of the world. And then Sharon is a, is a plain that stretches about 30 miles, but is also just known as an incredibly hospitable place to be. So we have a desert that's blooming, and it's going to be, instead of a barren wasteland, like these hospitable, verdant places, right? All right, let's go to the text right after the one that Jesus quotes. So these are the sentences right after what Jesus said, where we read, water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert, and the burning sand will become a pool and thirsty ground bubbling springs, and the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow, and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. So we have a desert that's blooming, a wasteland that's becoming verdant and hospitable, and then we have a highway. What's a highway doing there? Now, is this just kind of generic poetry? Is this just sort of like vague sort of images that help a person think about an ugly place turning into a nice place? No. Uh, the vast consensus on the context for Isaiah 35 is that it's being written by a person and for a people who are in exile, and specifically people who are longing to return, to get back to where they are supposed to be and who they are supposed to be and what they are here for on planet Earth. That that's actually the context of Isaiah 35. That Isaiah 35 is written for the Israelites who've been dragged into exile and who are longing and waiting for the moment when they get to come home. And home's not just a place, it's a, it's a vocation, it's a way of being in the world for them. Now that might sound great, the idea of coming home, but the problem for the Israelites is their direct path home from their exile to their homeland is something like 900 miles through a desert and they're not driving, right? This is a text for people who have had an awakening that they're not where they're supposed to be, they're not who they're supposed to be, they're not doing what they are here for, and they want, and they're, they're ready to return, to get back to it, to come back to it. But they look from their place of exile toward their homeland, toward who they are here to be, and perhaps they can't even see the path. Like, they forgot to leave breadcrumbs as they made their way into exile. So maybe they don't know the way back, or maybe they do, but when they look at the way back, it's harrowing, it's threatening, it's menacing. You, you look at what stands between you and where you wanna be and who you want to be, who you were supposed to be. You, like, you look at the path between where you are and that, and you don't know if you can make it. 
You know, you, know, you know, if you can get back there. So John's whole message was, hey, people, we got to return to who we actually are. And then he sees Jesus, and he says, you're even more important in this movement of getting us back to who we are here to be. And then he questions it, and then Jesus grabs this text, which is all about returning from the place of exile, and specifically the prophetic word that says, if you decide to return, if you decide to wake up and come home, if you decide to come back to who you are and what you are here for, it may not be easy but that pathway will be paved with unexpected graces. If you decide to come back to who you are and what you are here for, it may not be easy, but that pathway will be paved with unexpected graces. I can't help but think of some of the people I admire most uh, when I read a text like that. These are people I know who have woken up and decided to come home to who they are and what they are here for. And it's not easy, it's brave, um, but it's really beautiful. Uh, just last night, I had the privilege of hanging out with a friend of mine, uh, a really dear friend, who is a couple of weeks into uh, a recovery journey, uh, doing like full-time rehab for alcohol uh, at a facility, and he's got leave uh, for the weekend. And uh, So I went to hang out with him for a couple of reasons. One, I just think anybody who's being brave like that should know who's in their corner. And we're all fighting big fights in the world, but we all ought to know who's got our back, right? So that's one reason you show up. But the other reason, honestly, is I've learned over time that, um, that if somebody's being that brave, you ought to go see if you can soak up some of that bravery, right? <laughs> that if somebody's doing that kind of hard and beautiful work, they probably have wisdom that the rest of us need. And so I also show up selfish, because like, I want to I wanna learn from and be inspired by people who are doing such important things like that, right? So anyway, uh, he and I were talking last night. And uh, I was curious, I asked him, like, what did it feel like the minute before you walked into the rehab? So like, were you anxious, were you excited? He's like, oh man, I was sitting in the car, I was like shaking in my boots. There's a lot of unknown in that journey, right? And whether it's alcohol or anything else, like if any of us decides that we have become something we were not meant to be and we decide to come home, like there's a lot unknown, and you might be shaking in your boots. But, but then he told me about the last two weeks, and his face just lit up. He talked about uh, how he's like built some relationship and connection with his brothers in rehab that has been hard to find outside that space, because you know what? Nobody's faking it in rehab. <laughs> right? Like, we could use more of that in the world, right? He just kind of lit up about the people that he's walking with and what he's learning about himself. And I, as he was talking, I was just thinking, yep. The path home may not be easy, but it is paved with unexpected graces. Thought about another friend of mine. Uh, I just met her a few months ago, really. Uh, she was visiting other friends here in South Bend, so we had some time to get to know each other a little bit. And then some months passed, and then I was in another part of the country, and she was also in that part of the country, and we got to catch up a little bit on her life. And the thing is, like, when we met in South Bend, uh, she was great, and she was positive and had great energy, but, man, when I met her just a little while later, uh, in another part of the country, and some of her journey had progressed. There was this lightness of being that you could feel like across the room, like almost something radiating. I was kind of watching it for a bit. And the thing is, I knew about what had transgressed in her life over the past uh, several months, but I wanted to like, give her a chance to talk about it. And for her, what had happened is um, she, she decided to do some like, really important inner work like face some demons and some frustrations and some struggles like that we all have. And part of that work for her was coming to terms with and naming the truth about her sexuality. And uh, doing that 
for herself and for like family and friends and coworkers, um, has been a profound act of bravery. In fact, she lost her job because of it. And that's not like subtext. It's she lost her job because of it, very plainly. And yet, I asked her, I was like, you seem good. You, you good? She's like, like better than I've been in a long time, you know? And just listening to her, I, just, I was thinking like, yeah, the path of return, the path to who we really are, uh, it's terrifying to take those steps, and yet the prophet is right. Isaiah knew what he was talking about when he said, there will be unexpected graces that will transform that barren path into something like a, a verdant valley that will sustain you as you walk. So Jesus, um, in quoting Isaiah 35, is, is naming something really important for all of us this Advent season, who want to walk with God and welcome God and wake up with God as the light grows. Now, uh, there's something else going on in the text, so like, just park that, okay? And we're going to add something to it. There's something else going on here that's really interesting. So uh, in the Matthew text we already read, it refers to Jesus as the Messiah. Now, Messiah is a very particular word for these people in the first century, and it has particular expectations wrapped around it. If you hear Messiah today, uh, there's a lot of like, Christian theology that might get wrapped up in that. But originally, what we're talking about for these people is the expectation, uh, it literally just means anointed one. Uh, and Christ in Greek also means anointed one. And it, it starts out as an expectation for these people that we will have a good king once again. That we will have a good king once again. Because earlier in their history, they had had some good kings. And when they had good kings, like David, and kings are anointed, it's basically how they're inaugurated, if you will. That's how you, that's how you make a king a king, is you anoint the king, right? So these good anointed kings, when you had a good king, things were good for the people, and they had a very strong sense of God being with them through the reign of the king. So the text talks about Jesus the Messiah, and John seems to be hoping and thinking that Jesus is going to be the Messiah. And so John asks Jesus, are you the Messiah that we were hoping for? And Jesus responds with Isaiah 35. Here's what's peculiar. Isaiah 35 is not a messianic text. There's lots of messianic texts in the Old Testament, lots of places where the writers of the Hebrew scriptures spoke about their hopefulness for a king. In fact, some of the other Isaiah texts that we've looked at this month are messianic texts because they look forward to a king. So John seems to be very clearly asking, are you the king that we were hoping for? And Jesus could have picked from anything he wants to describe himself and what's happening in his life, right? But he seems very self-consciously to not choose a messianic text. What's going on here? Well, like, like for John, by the way, I, like, I think he might have hoped that Jesus' answer would have been something like, oh yeah, don't worry, John. We got out on the download, but we got weapons and we got an army and just when the moment's right, we are taking on Herod and we're gonna own the land. I think that would actually be uh, more sort of native to John's expectation of what this movement was gonna look like. So John's like, are, are you the guy? Like, come on, man, we're waiting. Are you the guy? And Jesus kind of subversively, maybe frustratingly, refuses to play into that expectation. And instead, he speaks about healing and return from exile. That's really interesting. And it also makes sense of what happens next in Matthew 11. So let's keep working on Matthew 11. Let's go further. As John's disciples were leaving after getting the answer from Jesus, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. And he says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, these who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? 
Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Here Jesus quotes uh, other older scripture. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. And then truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What is going on? We got like a reed metaphor, and then Jesus is talking about fashion for some reason? Like, what's going on here, right? Well, this is really interesting. So during the time of Jesus and John the Baptist, there's a king, he's a puppet king, that the Romans have given power to, and he, he oversees the Israelites, the Jewish people, and they're part of the Roman Empire, right? It's the same puppet king who has imprisoned John. This guy seems to be corrupt, he, he's just sort of a power wielder, right? And here's the thing about King Herod. When he minted coins, one of the symbols he put on his coins, they look like this, on the right you'll see it, one of the symbols is a reed. It seems that he adopted a reed for some reason as like the sign of his reign or his power over that part of the Roman Empire, right? It seems clear that Jesus' original hearers would have known that Jesus is making a reference to Herod and the kind of power that Herod wields. And he says to his people, when you went to the wilderness, did you go out there to see that kind of power? Is that what you were looking for? And then he talks about fine clothes, the, the adornment of the people in power. He says, no, it's the people in the king's palace that wear fine clothes. And then he says, no, you went out to see a prophet, didn't you? That moment when you followed your best instincts and you went out to the wilderness because your heart told you something true was being spoken by this man, that moment when you heard him cry out and say, hey, people, we need to get back to who we are, that moment when he said, we can get back to who we are, we can recover it, we can be restored to it, that moment when you went out there, he said, what was it that you were chasing? What was it that you were trusting in? What is it that you were looking for or hoping for? And then he sets up these two things side by side. One possibility is that you were looking for the kind of power that Herod wields. But then he points out, no, that, that wasn't what you were looking for, was it? He said, you went out there for a prophet, which is a very different kind of voice and message and power in the world. Now, hang with me for a minute, because sometimes it can be hard for people in the year 2019 to get their brains back into the imagination of people 2,000 years ago, right? But try to stretch your imagination. It turns out that 2,000 years ago, when societies had an awakening, that that the society was headed in the wrong direction, or that they weren't the way they wanted to be, or that they weren't relating to each other the way that they should be relating to each other, when they had this sense that we need help, and we've gotta be restored, we've gotta get back to who we are actually supposed to be. It turns out 2,000 years ago, these strange, ancient people were tempted to channel all of that hope into the people who wielded political power. Thank you. It's actually a natural thing to do. When we collectively agree that we are not what we want to be, that's a potent moment for a society. And it's natural to channel all of that hope and expectation and frustration and longing and energy and discontent toward the political sort of powers of the day, right? And Jesus seems to be saying to these people, the arrival of God is not dependent on whoever is in that palace where Herod resides. He seems to be saying to the people that for you to decide to be who you actually are, for you to come back to what you are actually here for, don't abdicate that to whoever holds power right now because you can say yes to that right now. So the prophet went to the wilderness to tell the people that the arrival of God is happening right now and you can say yes to it. It may not look like the kind of power that we have become addicted to, 
But there is a, a power that the prophet speaks of, and it heals people. It's the power that Jesus is working with, and it's the power that he seems to be saying we can participate in in the here and now. Now, I say that uh, with some disclaimers, so hang with me, okay? Please listen to what I say next. I think politics is really important. I think how we use our power and the world that we are creating is really important. I think if Jesus himself were standing on the stage right now talking to South and City Church, I think one of the things he would challenge us on is how are you using your power? And by power, he means all the ways that you have any influence, whether it's your money, your relationships, your voice, or your vote. I think politics is really important. I think God cares about the flourishing of every person and especially about the flourishing of those who suffer or who are on the underside of injustice. And I think when we have good people in power and when we have good policies, everybody flourishes more. And when we have bad people in power or bad policies, people suffer more. So I think politics is really important. I just don't think our hope lives at the level of politics. I think our, our hope has to be rooted deeper than that. One of the reasons I believe that is because I spent too much time in too many places in the world and have too many friends who live in places in the world where there is genuinely no hope that tomorrow the government's going to work. And this is a perspective that we, we can lose a little bit maybe when we live in the, in the West or in the developed world, but I've been in too many places with too many people where the gang lords are going to run things tomorrow or the dictator is going to run things tomorrow, or the squads might show up tomorrow night for you or your family, and they can't fix that tomorrow. But I don't think God's kingdom is waiting for those things which are beyond their personal power to get fixed before it arrives for them. And I think the same goes uh, for Americans. I think we should pay attention to politics. I think we should learn about politics. I think we should be really thoughtful and engaged on politics. I think we should pray about politics, and I think we should try to use our vote and our voice and our power and our money and everything else in a way that honors our convictions about what God is calling us to as a human race. I think all that matters. I just don't think it's the level at which all of our hope resides. I think it's got to run deeper and go further in. Uh, we'll probably talk about more of this in 2019, or 2020. Uh, I don't know if you've heard there's an election coming up. And we thought, it's been a while since we tried to blow up the church, so let's do a series on politics. <laughs> we're, I think we're going to try to think out loud together uh, during the election cycle, like in October of 2020. I think it'd be really healthy for us. Uh, so that's a little taste of what's coming several months down the road. Um, but today, I'll just say, like, as a pastor in South Bend, Indiana, um, I think it's really important for us to be fierce and mindful about like, where our hope comes from. Uh, a city that for the first time in maybe memory is, seems relevant to the national political conversation that we're having. I love that, by the way. I love that. I just think while we take advantage of that and make the most of it, I think it'd be really good if we allowed this Advent message to remind us that our hope runs deeper and it's not predicated on who wins the next election, right? Make sense? <laughs> I know. <laughs> if that's the worst feedback I get on this message, we're doing okay, right? Uh, I, was, I was wrestling with uh, these texts. It's a little confusing, right? We have a message about healing, and then we have reeds and fancy clothes. But I think what Jesus knows in his deep insight about the human condition is that so many of us are longing for a pathway of return to get back to who we are individually and as a human community. We are longing for that pathway. And so he begins by reminding us that it's available. 
And it may not be easy, but it will be paved with unexpected graces. And then he seems to be saying, and by the way, don't forget that when you were clearest minded, when you were listening to your best impulses, when you understood what God was doing, you weren't primarily looking to the people in power as your source of hope. There's something else that your heart trusted in that moment. And I think that's a really good Advent word. I say that as um, having the privilege of pastoring a church that holds together a very wide array of passionately held political perspectives. I love that about our church. I say that uh, recognizing that we are being hammered with these messages all the time, uh, which is why we need to like, let this message seep in. Sound good? Okay. Uh, we're going to light our third Advent candle. Uh, the third week of Advent traditionally is a, is a more brightly colored candle uh, because this week is actually about joy. And so we started with the ringers when the kids came in. And we're sort of concluding as we light this candle with, with a reminder that like, our hope is not predicated or constrained by what's happening in Washington, D.C. It's not predicated or constrained by good or bad policy, even though policy matters and we should pay close attention to it. Our hope runs deeper and it's available to us on the worst days and the best days, on our worst days and our best days, because God will pave that road home with unexpected graces. If you're able, will you stand to your feet? We've got a, a communal prayer that we'll offer together here as we light this candle and then the team will lead us in a, a song. But together we pray. O oh God of Isaiah and John the Baptist, through all such faithful ones, you proclaim the unfolding of future joy and renewed life. Strengthen our hearts to believe your advent promise that one day we will walk in the holy way of Christ, where sorrow and sighing will be no more, and the journey of God's people will be joy. We light this candle as a sign of the coming light of Christ. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Amen. I was uh, wrestling with those texts because they're a little weird. Kind of had everything on the table, you know? I was studying and praying and reflecting and thinking. And then it started to become clearer, at least as far as I can tell, like what's going on there. And I thought, oh no, I don't want to talk about politics. <laughs> and my second thought was, oh, we have to, right? Um, because it's just in the air right now. And I'm so grateful uh, for a promise that maybe not everyone finds believable right now, but that's okay. But at least a promise that some of us trust here, which is that uh, the life of God is available right now. It's not waiting for the permission of anybody else in your life for you to say yes to it. And as you say yes to that, to return to who you are and what you are here for as your life is a gift for the world. As I was preparing this week, I couldn't help but think of the many brave faces of this community that I know and the number of stories that I've heard when somebody comes up and shares with one of us about the steps that they're taking to return, to come home, to re restore, uh, to be free and to be alive. And often those stories are told through trembling lips and tear-filled eyes. But there's this bravery inside all of that that I just admire so much. I know that um, everybody is busy doing really good and important things here to, 
make the world better. And some of that work is political. And we're cheering for you and praying for you and believing the best about you and for you. And we have a lot to learn about how to be uh, people in the world in 2019. But this Advent season, I'm so grateful uh, for the hopefulness of this message. So if you have had any sense that where you are is not where you want to be, and that who you have become is not really who you are, may you hear the word of John who says, come home, return, repent. May you hear the promise of Jesus who says that if you take those brave steps, it may not be easy, but you will find that the path of return is paved with unexpected graces. May all of us who long for us to be what we are meant to be, may we root our hope deeper than the current politic, and may this Christmas season we be people who welcome God, and may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week.